So I mentioned to you last week how uh, going home for the holidays was uh, great, the vacation, and, but at the same time how often it's a mixed blessing because I go there to relax and as soon as I get home my mom and dad hand me a, a big book of instructions and point out to the, the backyard where there's a stack of lumber and they said, uh, we bought a playhouse and we didn't get the chance to build it before you came, could you make it? So I took the next three days building this stupid thing. I'm sure, uh, Lloyd, uh, you're a handyman. You could have done it probably in a morning, but it took me a much longer time. But one of the things that was interesting for me as I looked through the instructions, which are highly detailed, is how important it was for me to have an idea of where I was going with this thing. Uh, because you look at instructions, you sort of think, I, I don't even know how this thing fits together very well. Uh, and then you look on the front page where they have an actual picture of what you're supposed to end up with. And it's tremendously helpful. You think through and you think, I don't know where this fits. Does it matter that I do it this way or the other? And then you closely examine the picture and you realize, oh, this goes right here. That's why it's important to get the angle exactly correct. It motivates you because it makes you think, finally, I'm going to end up with something really good at the end of this. But it also helps you in the construction because if you don't know where you're headed, then it's really hard to follow instructions, even if they're highly detailed. Now that's a general principle in life. That's what a sermon is supposed to do. You're supposed to kind of know where you're going because otherwise it's a rambly mess. So hopefully you can judge at the end whether I knew whether I was going somewhere or not. <laughs> but I say that not just because that's a general truism. I say that because I think that uh, is partly where Paul is going in our letter to the Ephesians today. We've been following Ephesians the past couple of weeks. We'll be following for another few weeks. But in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the section that we're looking at today, St. Paul talks about the plan God has for the church. These are the things uh, that he says. I had marked it properly. <clears throat> I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. St. Paul here talks to the people of Ephesus and says, I want you to understand the depth of what God is doing, the mystery that's been revealed to you and what God is building in you as a church. And so what I'd like to spend time with today and, and to sort of focus on as much as I can is what this real vision is. What is God's plan? What is it that God is building? And what is it that he's speaking to the Ephesians about and how that speaks to us as the modern church? But before I get into that, I'd like also to talk about something that I think it's a good opportunity to do today. This passage is not primarily about this, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit uh, about something that does occur in this passage. You may have noticed as we began the reading, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. And I wanted to speak to you a little bit today about why we use that language of Father, uh, because there's lots of reasons why you might want, not want to do it. And I think it's important to address here, because unfortunately sometimes that language is a stumbling block, that makes it hard for us to understand the main point of what St. Paul is saying or in other parts of the scripture. It can be a real stumbling block, I think, for some very good reasons. You know, one of the things that's been a great blessing to the church in modern decades is the way that women have become more prominent in theological departments, in training seminarians, in writing biblical commentaries, and different ways in which women's perspectives that may not have been heard very clearly in past years have come more to the forefront. It's one of the things that has helped us to understand, for example, the prominence of women in the gospel stories that has sometimes been underplayed. But one of the things that many uh, scholars, particularly female scholars, have noted is the predominance of masculine language we use when we talk about God in the church. 
historically, but also in the scriptures. And one of the challenges that brings is when we talk about God as Father and we refer to God as He, there's a real danger. Many of those critiques that people are making about the masculine language about God really hits home because they can argue and say, you know what, isn't it interesting that at the very beginning of Scripture, what we see when human beings are made is not God creating a man and saying, let us make a man in our image, and he made a man, and this accurately reflects who I am. It's let us make mankind in our image, and God made male and female, he created them. In other words, you can point to the very first chapters of Genesis when human beings are made and say human beings made in the image of God is not that it's male or female, but instead it's when men and women work together in a complementary fashion that you actually reflect God more fully. Isn't it really true when we look in the church? Some of the sad scandals we've seen throughout the history of the church and particularly I've been particularly saddened by a new wave of scandals that are rocking the American uh, Catholic Church today. Uh, Cardinal uh, McCarrick is his name, is in his 80s, and a person who has enjoyed the favor of John Paul II, uh, enjoyed the favor of Benedict XVI and Francis as three different popes, was elevated all the way to the place of cardinal. And now it's become clear that over his past, the church settled many lawsuits against the man for child abuse and for sexually harassing young men in seminaries. And what happened? Instead of it being brought to light, superiors simply brought them forward. How much different might it have been if women had a greater role in the church to critique and say, wait a second, these are children who are in danger. And how easy it is in an old boys network without a female response that the church actually doesn't live up to her obligations. How true it is that we look through the history of the church and thankfully uh, are recovering some of the ways in which women's witness has been really prominent and unfortunately sometimes ignored. Look at the first, uh, first people at the tomb. It wasn't men. The disciples had been scared away when Jesus was crucified. It was a group of women who came and first proclaimed that Jesus was risen. Or we look throughout the history of the church, and although it's harder to know uh, in the first centuries, we know that probably for the last thousand years at least, when we look at parish records, the majority of people attending church have been women. Even today in more sort of patriarchal churches, you go to a Roman Catholic church or you go to even more conservative evangelical churches, you'll see what you see in our church, which is most churches are majority women who are coming. When you think about, uh, sadly, uh, men often not taking the responsibility they have, but how many of us learn the faith at our mother's knee? You look at that and you ask yourself, well, how is it that the church always keeps speaking about God in masculine terms? Isn't it time we start challenging that and thinking it over again? The short answer is yes. How easy is it for us to simply use one way we speak about God and forget that the scriptures talk about God in lots of different ways? Think of Jesus, as he comes to Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem, the city that, stones, uh, that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How I long to gather you as a mother hand gathers the brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Jesus himself uses a maternal image, or the language of God as creator, how he creates uh, in six days the earth, and he says, all that I've made is good. Or God is judge, or God is shepherd. These aren't necessarily masculine images. Or those great images in Isaiah about how God uh, wails and moans at how Israel has, has left, but even so, he won't abandon Israel. Does a mother forget her children, God says? Well, I'm not going to forget you. 
How easy is it for us to slip into a way of speaking about God that ignores the many ways in which Scripture and the Christian tradition allow us to speak about God in more full and more sort of uh, uh, ways that speak to many different aspects of human relationship. So why do we keep using this? Why is the Father language so very central uh, still today in the church? I think acknowledging all those things about how we need to expand our language of God is absolutely right. But I'd like to suggest some ways in which what the, the Father language we continue to use is still important. I'd like to say that really the biggest reason is because by a, a large margin, it is mainly the way that Jesus speaks about God. If you think about throughout the scriptures how it is we're used to seeing this, we're used to hearing this, we're used to reading this, that Jesus says, Father, he says it all the time. On in the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In the garden of Gethsemane, Father, let this cup pass from me. Uh, we look at Jesus speaking again and again when the disciples say, how do we pray? He says, our Father who art in heaven. Now you might very well say, well, that's just the standards of the day, but actually it wasn't. One of the things that's interesting when you look through the Old Testament is how rare it is that God is referred to as Father. He will be referred to as the Lord of hosts. He'll be referred to the, the Lord. He'll be referred to in lots of different ways. But very, very rarely is it Father. Jesus, however, uses this as the primary way both in his public ministry and in his private language of prayer speaks to God. One of the reasons that the church continues to use Father language is not because there are not other ways to speak about God. There are but because we're following what Jesus himself says. It's one of the ways that we say, you know, we may struggle with this and not fully understand. When we think about all the ways we can speak about God, we recognize that every way is imperfect. We are human beings. There is no one term or one way we can speak about God that encompasses everything about who God is. What do we do in those situations? We rely on the way that Jesus said to us in saying this is the way to speak about God. Not that it's the only way, but that we as a church recognize in following the footsteps of Jesus, we need to take that language seriously. Here's a second reason that I think is related to it. One of the things that's really interesting about the term father is that the term father is inherently relational language. If you have uh, uh, the word father, there's no way of having the word father without there being a daughter or a son involved. In fact, everyone who is on the earth today or has ever walked the face of the earth has a father. And it may be that they didn't know them because he died or took off before they came to know them. It may be that father is a terrible father and every time you think of him you find yourself feeling terrible. Or it may be that he's an excellent father. Whatever that range of different emotions you may have as a result, it's definitely a relationship, whether it's a good one or a bad one. That's not necessarily true when we use other language about God. Think about God as a creator. Very true. I was on vacation recently and I went on a canoe trip with my two daughters and it was so wonderful to go out and look at the trees swaying in the breeze or when we were on the lake canoeing and seeing the wind come up and the choppy waves and realize there's a danger here and a beauty and grandeur. Or we listen to the loons in the middle of the night calling to each other. This creator has made wonderful things. A creator can't have a relationship to its creation, but that's not necessarily true. Think about a carpenter. She may take uh, fine wood, some oak, and, and, and gently and delicately carve it and, and, and make a piece of furniture by dovetailing and showing craftsmanship that's excellent. And clearly they've poured something of themselves into it. Or 
It can have like happened to me last week. I ran over a nail and so I had to buy a new tire. It's a Pirelli tire, so I'm guessing it comes from Italy, but I don't know who made it. I don't know where the factory is. I don't know what materials went into it. I have absolutely no idea about its, its, its manufacture. There's no relationship between creator and its creation because it is nameless and it seems to have been absorbed by a big institutional system. One of the things that Jesus keeps talking about when he talks about the Father is that he says, when you want to understand who God is, you need to understand at the core of God's being the relationship between the persons of the Trinity. Father and Son is an inherently close relationship, a familial relationship. And that is something that if you miss and don't use that language, you miss that at God's heart is relationship. How deeply important it is for us to know that when Jesus says, come and follow me, it's not, here's a bunch of rules to follow. In fact, what Jesus is doing when he invites us to follow him, when he invites us to be baptized, to enter into the community of the church, is that he's saying, I want you to have the same relationship with God that I do. Think about that great conversation Jesus has after the resurrection with Mary Magdalene, one of the female disciples. And Mary Magdalene is overjoyed, wants to cling to Jesus, but then he gives her an important task. And he says, go to the disciples. And he says, not just disciples, he says in Matthew's gospel, go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my father and your father. Interesting that Jesus uses that language. What he's saying is, is that, I don't see you as simply people who are my followers. I see you as fellow members of the divine family. In other words, when Jesus is inviting us to follow him, he's inviting us to be in the same relationship he has with his father. When we leave that language behind and don't speak about God as our father and refuse to do that, what we end up doing, I think, is subtly depersonalizing God. Yes, God is creator. Yes, God relates to his material uh, world. But it's also to say that God relates to Jesus in a very particular, intimate way that we're invited into. Here's the last thing that I'd like to suggest. I'd like to suggest that one of the things that listening to this language, as difficult as it might be for us, one of the reasons why listening to this language is really important for us is that it's always important to listen to a voice from outside of our culture and our time. What I mean by that is, is that for 2,000 years, our ancestors, and churches around the globe today have used this language. And it may be language that sometimes makes us uncomfortable, but I think we as human beings need to remember that sometimes we need to hear a voice from outside because otherwise we are prone to blind spots. You know, one of the things that has been most tragic and sad working through is working through the effects, uh, the lingering effects of European contact with indigenous peoples in Canada. We've heard a lot about this recently, thankfully. But one of the things, of course, uh, when I first started hearing about the Indian residential schools that was shocking was the shocking level uh, of, of victims speaking about sexual and physical abuse that they suffered. Horrifying, terrible. But sadly, that's something that has often happened through history. I remember when I was an intern, I served near, um, uh, near Barrie, Ontario. And I got to know a man in his 90s, and he was one of the, uh, he was a, a, an Irishman. How he ended up in Canada is what was known as one of the Bernardo boys. And Dr. Bernardo uh, had this idea that if you bring uh, young orphans and kids who are poor into Canada, the fresh air and hard farm work would be good for them. Essentially, when he came over as an orphan to Canada, he was a slave. He worked hard, 
and he suffered abuse, physical abuse, on a regular basis. It was amazing that he turned out to be such a good man and such a good father. And I had the privilege of being there and assisting at his funeral. So unfortunately, sadly, abuse of persons is sadly a thing that is often common in the world. But as Irene has often pointed out to me, and as I've often heard from others, one of the greatest sadnesses about the Indian residential schools it was that it was typical of the ways in which many ways, not only abuse happened, but the difference was is that you go as an English or an Irish boy and you go through abuse and you come out again as an Irish or English boy who suffered abuse. You go into an Indian residential school as a native person and you're expected to be an English person as you grow out. You're stripped of your cultural traditions and your cultural and historical identity. How different would our relationship with indigenous peoples be today if instead of European peoples, European peoples coming to First Nations people and saying, we have lots to learn, shut up and listen, or lots to teach, shut up and listen, to say, yes, we have things we think we can share, but I recognize that what you have is an ancient, sophisticated culture. What if I came to you and said, you have so much to teach us, why don't I sit and listen for a little while, even if it's different and strange and something I might not understand at first? Wouldn't our relationship to the earth and environment be different? Wouldn't our relationship today to indigenous peoples be different and less adversarial? Wouldn't we as a nation have a prouder heritage if that is the way that we had done it and said, we want to listen to the traditions of your elders and not simply impose them on you? I think that we're called to do that when we listen to the traditions of the church. We speak the words of the creed, for example, which sound alien to us because they were composed hundreds of years ago. We are always leaving our ears open to saying, I may not get this. It may not have been the way I wrote it, but I want to listen to the voice of my ancestors in the church and let their voice speak to me because I know it's entirely possible that I have a deep blind spot that you are able to see and I cannot. It requires a certain humility to allow us to continue to use this language and to recognize they had good reasons to use it, even if we can't always see those reasons. And in fact, when we listen to uh, St. Anselm of Canterbury from a thousand years ago, or St. Teresa of Avila from 500 years ago, or we listen to a Chinese woman today crying out to the Father and asking why her government oppresses her simply for following Jesus, we're saying we're listening and we're in unity with you, our ancestors, and we're listening to your voices even if we don't always get it. Don't have to agree with me, but I want you to know that there are reasons which we do it that I think is important for you to chew over and understand and appreciate. So I was saying that's an aside. It was kind of a long aside, and I'll try not to spend too much time in the rest of my sermon. But I want to go on to the main point of where Paul is speaking. Paul, as I said, was speaking about a very important thing, but the plan God has in bringing uh, and building up the church. Now, if you were listening last week, I will have, uh, you will have remembered, I ended up speaking about how what a great and wonderful thing it was that Gentiles and Jews, so Jews and those who had been formerly pagans, were united together in the church, and how great and wonderful a thing it is. Paul's continuing in this theme here in chapter 3, which he started in chapter 2. <clears throat> I'm going to get better at marking my territory here. There we go. Let's read through this and ask a few important questions. Verse 14. Listen as you're listening here. Listen to some of the things that lead you to ask important questions. Verse 14, he starts, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Well, what reason is that? 
from whom every family in heaven and earth takes its name. Why is he talking about family here after he's been talking about how the church is knit together like the temple of God? Look at this. Verse 18, I pray you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. The length and breadth and height of depth of what? Or look at how he ends. To him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Why does he end up by talking about the power of God to do more than we can ask or imagine? I think it's because Paul is pointing out the fact that what he's been speaking about is something that is profound and deep and needs to continue to be held by the church as the goal for which the church continues to strive. As we begin, for this reason, what reason? He says in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, This is the reason I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. You've surely heard of the commission of God's grace given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I bowed above in a few words, of reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. And later he says, that is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What is he saying? What reason? Why do I bow before the Father? Because God chose me to reveal this mystery to Gentiles who are on the outside and now are in. What does he say is the height and depth and, and uh, length and breadth? This is the new temple God is creating in the church. I mentioned last week about how the temple in Jerusalem was the place where God's presence was most fully seen. And Paul says that through the intercessions of Christ, now the church is the place scattered throughout the world where people should look and see what unity there is and what God is really like. He calls us to say, celebrate the unity Christ has created between different people and groups. And then he ends with that call and saying God can do infinitely more. That power working through us can do infinitely more because we all look at that and say, I don't think that's realistic. And Paul says, well, you don't have to think it's realistic. God can do more than you think is realistic. I mean, after all, if you think you're in the ancient world as a Greek person and you think, I want to tell one of my Greek friends about Jesus, what can you imagine? The guy's scoffing. Why would I follow a Jewish Messiah? The Jews are backward and, and, and stupid as a race. Or you're a Jewish Christian and you go to your Jewish friend and say, come and follow Jesus. And then I would have to spend time with Gentiles who eat pork and, and worship idols. Forget that. I don't want that. How impossible it must seem. And yet, why did the church grow? Because of Christ's power working through common women and men, slaves and people of no repute, sharing their faith with others and sharing their love with others. People looking at the church and saying, amazing, that this alone is the place where true unity between divided people exists. I'd like to suggest that we look at that and take that word that God can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine and say that God can do the same thing in us and make us a church that people want to be part of if people can look at our church and see that people of many diverse backgrounds, many diverse challenges, as well as gifts, come together in genuine love and unity. You know, one of the things that I find most difficult to believe God is able to bridge is the bridge between we who come faithfully to church and those who are irreligious. I mentioned again last week about how most people still say they believe in God. They're open to spiritual things. The thing they're not open to is being part of a religious community. How hard it is when you uh, want to go out for brunch or your children have hockey or you want to go golfing. How hard it is for you to come to church and bridge, let's be honest, 
the chasm between the exciting and what you think is boring, right? Do I want to listen to some guy ramble on for 20 or sometimes more minutes about whatever he's supposed to be speaking about? I know very well that he can go onto YouTube and hear a TED talk that will blow them away. They can download the Martin Luther King sermon. They can listen to people far better than me. They want good music? Well, they can go to the NAC or they can get a Spotify account and listen to anything under the sun. They can listen to 16th century composers uh, being played by the world's greatest musicians. You know, they can go and pick their spots as much as possible and look out at the world in which so many challenges exist between coming to church as opposed to not. I wonder, can this happen? God is able, with the power working in us, to do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. It's the only reason we have hope. That the same God who bridged the chasm between Gentile and Jew, who bridges the chasm between male and female, the same God who bridges the chasm between sinners and those who seek to do God's will, the one who bridged the chasm between God and human beings, although human beings rebelled, that same God can bridge the chasm between us and those who are bored with the church. Can't he? Our call as a church is to say we want to celebrate and continue to be the place where people of different races and backgrounds, people of different ethnicities, people of different income levels and education, the people who are different and we might not naturally associate with are still people we can safely call sisters and brothers because of the power of Christ. And we trust in God's spirit working through us to love the neighbors who aren't easy to love and the neighbors who have written off the church. Yes, we can trust that God. Our hope lies in the Lord. And St. Paul's main point is to understand God has been planning this from the beginning, and this is the mystery he revealed to us. Let's hold on to that mystery. Let's hold on to the plan God has and know that though we may be weak and feeble, God is not, and he can build this church. If only we take him up on his challenge and let his power work through us and love this world so deeply and profoundly that they come to believe that this is a place worth being part of.